history is the weirdest. This is only a test. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunle, and with me, as always, is the intrepid, the amazing Nathan Radke. Now, you say with me today, and for a change, we sort of mean it today. Yeah. I can see you across the room. You, we are both in the bunker right now. We are both back in the bunker. It feels great. I mean, I'm like 20 feet away from you. And if I didn't have headphones on, I wouldn't hear a word of what you're saying. But I can see you. But we are in the same room. Yes. Finally. It's yes. It's very exciting. And of course, the reason that we haven't been in the same room for a long time is because this is being recorded in August of 2021. And so we are, what, like 16 months into a pandemic and a lockdown. That's right. But the reason that we are able to be in the same room right now is because both you and I have been double vaccinated. And so that provides us with some measure of protection against the virus. Yes, although, as I have been told, it will also turn us into chimpanzees. Well, that's kind of a problem. Because there, I mean, that that throws us right into today's topic, (laughs) I think. Because what we're talking about today is we're talking about a kind of warfare. We're talking about a kind of warfare which... I think fundamentally is the whole point of the podcast since the very beginning. One of the very earliest episodes we ever did was on weaponized information. And we're going to sort of continue along that now. And we're going to look at it from kind of a different angle than we normally look at it. Because historically, we have been highly critical of the CIA, the FBI. Well, today we're going to stay in the Cold War milieu, but we're going to look at more the other side of it. We're going to look at an organization that, for the purposes of simplicity, we'll probably end up referring to as the KGB. Yeah. And it's easy to be critical of the KGB, and we have more material than we're going to be able to get through. But, man, is there some some amazing stuff here. There is some wild stuff. Uh, And so let's start with what you said about how uh, the, the COVID vaccine will turn you into a chimpanzee. In December of 2020, there were a bunch of memes that were circulating uh, amongst Facebook users in India. And basically what they were, uh, you've seen the 1968 classic Planet of the Apes. I sure have. I'm a sci-fi geek. Love it. It's one of the canon. Stone Cold classic. Well, these memes took sort of still photos from Planet of the Apes in which there was a human, Charlton Heston, being uh, talked to by people in ape outfits. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! And these still photographs and these memes were accompanied by warnings about how the AstraZeneca vaccine would turn users into chimpanzees. Now, we actually did an episode on vaccines, of course. The, the reason that there's this sort of chimpanzee angle is that the AstraZeneca vaccine did place the vaccine DNA within a chimpanzee virus, which when you say it out loud sounds pretty bizarre. Yeah. And it's certainly, I mean, I'm no epidemiologist, that's for sure. It did feel like kind of a, uh, um, a not entirely pleasant vaccine to be on the receiving end of. My wife was sick for like five days, I think. And you got the AZ too, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Right. So you're mostly chimp at this point. I'm, I, yeah, I feel it. Of course, obviously... That wasn't the case. That was absurd. That was untrue. It was a lie that this vaccine would turn people into chimpanzees. But it was interesting that 
In December 2020, all of these memes started to circulate throughout Indian Facebook. And we learned more about that event in May. In May, there was a German YouTuber and an influencer named Mirko Drachmann, and he receives an offer to promote something on his channel. There's a marketing agency called Faza, and they said they would give him 2,000 euros to state that the death rate from the Pfizer vaccine was three times higher than the AstraZeneca. Now, again, this information was untrue, and so this influencer, being an influencer who tend to be extremely conscientious and ethical sorts, uh, decided that this wasn't necessarily a thing he wanted to be part of. In France, another YouTuber named Leo Grasset had a similar offer from this, this ad company, Faza. We'll give you 2,000 euro if you just start attacking the Pfizer vaccine. In the instructions both men received, it said, quote, Act like you have the passion and interest in this topic. End quote. And they were also told, don't mention that the posts were sponsored. Now, there were some YouTubers who did come forward and start promoting this information that Faza wanted them to push. There was an Indian YouTuber named Ashkar Techi. Uh, he normally just talked about cars and dating. And all of a sudden, he started talking about the death rate of Pfizer, which, again, was untrue. There was a Brazilian YouTuber named Everson Zoyo. He normally just sort of posted pranks and stuff. He also started repeating the claims in his videos. When a German journalist named Daniel Laufer contacted both of them about it, uh, they immediately took down those posts. So at this point, the uh, influencers have come forward to the media and talked about this sort of strange request that they've gotten. And so the BBC tries to contact FASA. But the emails bounce back from the domain of a marketing company called AdNow. So then the BBC looks into AdNow, and it turns out that this is a marketing company based in the UK and in Russia. So they uh, contact one of the directors of the British arm of AdNow, and he claims that he wasn't aware of this disinformation campaign that FASA was running. Uh, but that because now that he hears about it, he says that he's going to shut down AdNow in the UK. And since then, uh, the FASA website has been taken down. And again, all of this stuff has been sort of dismissed. But it still placed those ideas as germs into the population. And this is the thing about information. It spreads through the social world, through social media, like germs. And so now this, this ad company, this FASA, for some reason was able to sort of insert into the popular culture these ideas about the dangerousness of the vaccines. We've seen this before, where uh, an idea gets placed somewhere, and even if the original source were to retract it, the idea then gets repeated by others who have taken the source as, you know, for taken it for granted that it's true, repeat it over and over again, others looking at the secondary source, not the primary source, repeat it further. And you can get these cascading waves of information that even if the original post, let's say, has been retracted, even if there were something like an apology or somebody comes out and says, look, I'm sorry, we, you know, this is totally wrong. The secondary and tertiary waves don't even get that message anymore. And so once an idea, as we say, goes viral it often no longer adheres to the facts, right? Once you introduce an idea organism into the information ecosystem, it takes on a life of its own. And at that point, it spreads and reproduces 
and basically will just sort of continue sometimes unimpeded. And of course, these days when we're all so well connected to each other through social media, that, that ecosystem is an easy place to reproduce in. I think one thing that we should do at this point is talk about, before we get into uh, an explanation of, of what exactly was happening here, we're going to have to go back to 1881. Even though this is a Facebook story, we're going to have to start at 1881 in order to understand it. Before we even do that, let's very quickly go over a couple of key terms which I think are important. Starting with the idea of information. When we say something like information, what we're referring to is something that is reasonably accurate, reasonably reliable. For the lack of a better word, as a philosopher, I struggle with this word. But when we say something's information, we'll say that it's something that is true. Now, misinformation is something that is mistaken. That's information where somebody gets it wrong, and it's very easy to get things wrong. We all get things wrong all of the time. But what we're talking about is disinformation. What's the difference between misinformation and disinformation? Disinformation is a lie. It's, it's when the speaker knows that the information is not true. Now, okay, or the original source knows that the information is not true. So I might make a mistake about where I'm going. I, I, I haven't been to Nathan's in so long that I forgot the address. If I tried to just make it up on my own, I might have ended up at a bunker much like this, but a couple of doors down. Disinformation is if I say to Nathan, hey, where do you live? And he sends me to the wrong address. It is, it is a deliberate lie. It's yeah. the best way to put it. It's a lie. Mis misinformation is a mistake. Correct. Disinformation is deliberate. That's right. And that's, that's what we're dealing with here with these, this sort of this odd ad company that starts trying to get influencers to push disinformation about the COVID vaccines. And our current ecosystem is so filled with this disinformation. We often talk about how we live in the age of information. It's the information age. And, and after doing some of this research, I'm like, yeah, I think it's more the disinformation age. Absolutely. Because most of the stuff that's out there is, is, is deliberately false or simply mistaken. And when something is deliberately false, it's often done so in a kind of weaponized format. Mm -hmm. And the effects can be absolutely chilling. And we've seen lots of examples of that. Well, and we've actually talked about examples of this, which we're not going to bring up in this episode because we've talked about them in the past, but two examples of especially uh, Soviet and even more broadly Russian disinformation. One was the, the fake text, the elders of Zion. The text is real. The information is complete conspiracy, bogus, anti-Semitic hate speech. And the other one was uh, CIA created uh, HIV AIDS, which was also a piece of KGB disinformation that we did a whole episode on and talked about its history from beginning in sort of planted newspaper reports up to East German scientists claiming that they had background information on this stuff. So those are some examples that we're not going to touch on, but to give you a sense of what disinformation looks like. Yeah. And to understand it, let's go back to 1881. That's right. There's, there is no episode where we don't find a reason to go 150 years back to start talking about Facebook or whatever. This is further back than usual, I think. All right. 1881. Here we go. Well, because that, that ad company came out of Russia, 
I think we need to turn our attention to Russia for this episode. And in order to understand Russia, I mean, it's such a complicated, such a, like such a rich history, such a strange history that you've got to start pretty far back. I mean, ideally, I'd like to start further, but uh, again, we have our limitations. <laughs> so I've chosen 1881. And so here's what's going on in 1881 in Russia. This is before the Soviet Union exists. And in fact, at this point, Russia is under the control of a royal family, the, the Tsar and his family. Like a lot of Europe, of course, at this point, it, it's, it's being run in this sort of antiquated, absurd way. Uh, I think it's safe to say that you and I are anti-monarchists. Yep. Because it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous way to choose your leader. You end up with this very small group of largely inbred individuals. Uh, it, it's not. It's not the best way to get a leader. And so, the the pugs of human society. I remember you exactly uh, referring to the royals as the pugs of human society. <laughs> Here is a secret that people in power hold on to, and they hold on to it very tightly, and they hold on to it very tightly because it's a secret that once it escapes. People in power can be in a lot of trouble. And the secret is this. Power is actually an extremely fragile and vulnerable thing. I mean, you might see its effects, especially in 1881 with the, the, the Russian monarchy. It would appear that they had all this wealth. It would appear that they had all of this, this control over the population. But what's amazing is how quickly that power can evaporate or how quickly the illusion of that power can escape. I mean, one, one great example, Lee, is something like the Berlin Wall. You have a situation there where if you try to cross the Berlin Wall one week, you get machine gunned to death. You can't have a better illustration of, of what power can do. But then a couple weeks later, you can stand on top of it with a hammer and smash it. And where has that power gone? And the answer is, the effects are real, but power itself is kind of an illusion. I feel like I need to pull out some Foucault at this point, but I don't have any at hand, so okay. And so this is something that people in power, I think, are keenly aware of and terrified of, especially if you're trying to run a monarchy, which is based on absurd myths about sort of divine bloodlines and all this nonsense. So in 1881, the Tsar is concerned there's some revolutionary rumblings from the Russian people. One way to conceal the absence of the existence of power is through terror and violence. And so what happens is the Tsar forms a secret police. They're called the Okhrana. Uh, they're formed to locate and eliminate threats of domestic and foreign sort of instigators of revolution. And they're particularly worried about leftists because there's been a lot of kind of Marxist intellectuals and, and people like that who have been making a lot of noise. The way that the Okhrana works is they have, uh, they infiltrate groups they intercept private correspondence, and they, they use something called agent provocateurs. What is an agent provocateur? These are people who operate as though they are part of the organization that they're spying on. And they often bring those people to do acts that are maybe more radical than they would otherwise be inclined to do. So this has been a worry within the protest movement, for example. You are part of a peaceful protest and then against, you know, whatever you want, like against a war or against economic policies. And so there's all these people marching around and then a small group, you know, do something 
quite violent. They set fire to uh, an establishment. They turn over a police car or something like that. Now, often, if that is done by an agent provocateur, what that'll do is... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Discredit, probably. Thank you! They will discredit the whole movement. I remember being part of protests that were 99.99999% totally peaceful, like huge operations of you know, tens of thousands of people. And the five people who overturned a police car, that's what makes it on the evening news. That's what gets shown the next day. Uh, that's what the talking heads talk about. And we're not then talking about the economic policies that were at issue. We end up talking about this, this kind of radicalized violence, which really detracts from the whole thing. And this is often what the agent provocateur does is discredit or somehow mangle the discourse in such a way that the actual point, you know, there were still, again, as I say, 99 point whatever percent of the people were out making, we might not agree with it, but making a legitimate political statement about something. So how do you circumvent that? Well, a burning cop car. Yeah, even if the cops set fire to it themselves, even if the person who set fire to that cop car was actually a cop. And we have seen lots of examples of this happening over the years. In fact, when I say infiltration, interception of private correspondence, agent provocateurs, what other program does that remind you of immediately? COINTELPRO? <laughs> exactly. I mean, 70 years later, the FBI would take some of the lessons from this Ahrana secret police and use them against the American people. Yeah. I feel like every state gets to a point where this becomes the logical next step. And I don't know if I'm being a little too deterministic. I don't know if I'm being too deterministic in saying that, but I feel like there comes a point where this this concept of realpolitik, the kind of realistic, dirty side of politics, becomes something that your state needs to engage in. That's because every state knows that the state doesn't really exist. Hmm. Everyone in power knows that even though the effects of power are real, the power itself is very easy to, to shatter. Uh, and this is also uh, sort of in this, in this time period, something that Lee already brought up, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. This is when an Okhrana agent named Matvai Golovinsky forges that document as a kind of disinformation, or as we're going to be saying, because we're talking about Russia, desinformatsia, to try to discredit, again, the Jewish part of the anti-monarchist movement in Russia. Okhrana, they, they're, they don't necessarily have as much power as you would expect. For example, they can arrest you, but they're not in charge of trying you. They're not in charge of punishing you. After the Okhrana arrests you, then you get sent over to just sort of the, the Russian authorities and you have to go through the typical Russian system. One of the things that they do in the 1900s, in the early 20th century, is they attempt to try to, to pull some sort of like 3D chess. And they look at the groups that they consider to be a threat. And one of the groups is a group called the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks are a leftist revolutionary party. Now, in an attempt to be clever and cause internal conflicts and to foment dissent within that leftist movement, they actually support the Bolsheviks. They thought, the Akhrana thought that the Bolsheviks were less violent than some of the other revolutionary movements at the time, and they also thought that the Bolsheviks could be controlled and used for their own purposes. Uh, again, 
to look at a more modern example of this, that sounds a lot to me like what the CIA did in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And like CIA in Afghanistan in the 1980s, you're like, you know, with the, with the, the privileged position that we have in our historical situation, <laughs> look back and think, well, what could possibly go wrong here? Because in both times they got really, you know, shot themselves in the foot with, with this kind of support. Yeah, I mean, the Okhrana does, obviously, a very poor job of preventing the revolutionary rumbles and also clearly underestimated the capacity for violence that the Bolsheviks possessed. Now, at the time, in the defense of the Okhrana, they were probably more occupied with the threat from the outside uh, in the form of Germany rather than the threat from the inside because this is World War I and Russia is fighting Germany. But then, as it turns out, the threat from the outside, Germany was actively funding and helping the threat from the inside, the Bolsheviks. Yeah. Uh, the, it, I mean, this, this is a whole podcast on its own, and we should really talk about it, but it's the German... So Lenin is in exile at the moment. Now, he's in Switzerland, and uh, it's the Germans who fund his trip back in a windowless uh, train car... Uh, a private train that they hire and take Lenin from Switzerland back into Russia. Uh, because, of course, the Germans' calculation here is that if you get a nice revolutionary movement happening in Russia, then Russia has to drop out of the war or they become severely compromised. Of course, what could possibly go wrong for Germany in this? You know, nothing, right? Man, all of these guys with their really clever notions, and they never stop to consider the, the ramifications. Well, especially for their own political interests. I mean, you know, there's the whole ethical stuff and all the civilians that get caught in the mix. But I mean, Germany then is divided and occupied by the Soviets for like 50 years. You know, <laughs> history is the weirdest. I mean, the other thing that's that's extraordinary to me is this is during World War One, where you have uh, bayonets and machine guns and heavy artillery and mustard gas, and yet it turns out that one of the the most effective weapons in this war isn't any of those things. It's a person with a brain full of ideas. Rather than exploding something, you can simply insert that person whose brain is full of ideas into a society. They start to spread those ideas, and it's far more effective than any physical weapon. Lenin's rhetoric works in large part because of the material situation in which Russia finds itself. I mean, people get mad, and, and essentially the Russian Revolution begins because in large part how hopeless their situation is in World War I. As a soldier, you're told things like, sorry, we don't have a gun or boots for you. So, you know, get it from one of the dead comrades you will see as you go out onto the battlefield. And it's this bad is, for morale. Exactly. This is, well, and also not just for the soldiers, but for their parents. You know, I mean, you, you, if the state turns to me and says, well, we're going to take your kids and send them to an unwinnable war with an enemy I personally have no animosity towards, um... No, you know, no, thank you. And so the Bolsheviks is, I mean, the way we often talk about the Russian Revolution is that there were these communists and they, you know, had a head full of ideas and they started spreading them. And while that is true, I think it's a little bit lighting a match in a forest 
that has not had any water for six months or a year. It is so dry that it's now that this spark really catches fire. Oh, absolutely. If if that country hadn't been so badly mismanaged by that royal family for so many years, uh, like Lenin's head full of Marxist ideas would not have found a fertile ground to start spreading around. Yeah. But it does contribute the spark to the room full of gasoline fumes. Yes, exactly. So now we have a revolution. Uh, the czar is removed and killed. Family is killed. Anastasia is killed. The Akrana headquarters, I mean... Here's the thing, and again, it's one of those ironies of history. I would argue that the Okhrana probably did more to contribute to the Russian Revolution than they did to prevent it. <laughs> and they did that in part because they were, you know, they were foolishly supporting the Bolsheviks, assuming that the Bolsheviks would be easy to control. But also, I don't think people like living in a society with a secret police that can, like, haul you out in the middle of the night. And so these sort of, these unethical actions by the Okhrana probably contributed to the distrust and the dislike of the Russian royal family. Sure. That makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, we're going to get to the relationship between the Okhrana and the KGB. But just to, to Nathan's point about how unpleasant it is to live in this society, I'm reminded of uh, a Soviet joke uh, of the time of the KGB. What is happiness in the Soviet Union? Answer... It's hearing a knock at three o'clock in the morning and realizing the KGB is taking your neighbor and not you. That is a grim joke. <laughs> but I mean, it's good news. They, they got rid of the Okrana. They burned down the headquarters. All of that oppression and violence that the Okrana represented inflicted on the Russian people by the Tsar, it's over now. There's been a revolution. They've thrown out sort of the old guard and... We've got a brand new society that we're going to be able to build into a better world without the need for secret police. Except, of course, almost immediately, the Bolsheviks realize, ooh, power. Power is a, a vulnerable and fragile thing. And this is a particularly vulnerable and fragile time. I mean, the, there's a Russian civil war going on at this point between the Bolsheviks and the, the monarchists. There's threats from countries like England that are trying to fight back against the Bolshevik Revolution. And so the Bolshevik government realizes, you know what we need? We need a, a secret police. <laughs> and so this is when the Cheka is formed. And basically they're formed to fulfill the exact same role for the new Bolshevik government that the Okhrana performed for the Tsar. In fact, two of the main Cheka training manuals, uh, Basic Tenets of Intelligence and brief instructions for the Cheka on how to conduct intelligence, are based entirely on the Akhrana techniques and tactics. So this is basically, here comes the new boss, same as the old boss. Right. I just want to make a more general point about regime change, which is that while you can get rid of the leadership, and of course the Tsar and his uh, family are executed, you can't get rid of the whole civil service and the whole citizenry that supported it. You can change the boss, but often the workers are the same. So it's sort of in with the new boss, same as the old boss, but more importantly is that, well, the workers are still the same. And so uh, that, you know, your police are still the police who were there under the royal family. Your teachers are the people who were there under the royal family. And you can tell them to switch allegiances, and some do. And, you know, there's a certain segment of the population that isn't overly ideological, and it's you know, whatever, same, you know, new boss, same as the old boss. You, though, can't start entirely new. 
So it looks like um, once the Russian Revolution has succeeded, it looks from the outside as though you've got a completely new society. But really, you don't. Most people are still performing the functions that they did. And I assume that goes also for the secret police. I mean, who are you going to get to staff your secret police, if not the secret police? Oh, yeah. And there was definitely members of the Okhrana who then would go on to be in the Cheka. So the head of the Cheka is a guy called Felix Zerzhinsky. He's the first director. And because he knows he's a person in power and he knows that the revolution is a fragile thing in a vulnerable time, he argues that the new secret police that has replaced the, the, the horrifying Ochrana, the new secret police, the Cheka, must employ organized terror. This must be said openly. A terror which is absolutely essential in the revolutionary period we are passing through. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't have much to comment there. Um, and, and they're, and they're, speaks, very, they're very good at it. If anything, for itself. I mean, they're be- the Cheka, the replacement for the, for the horrible Okrana, the Cheka is probably even better at this because they become their own justice system. Whereas the Okrana arrests people and turns them over to the Russian criminal justice system, the Cheka, they don't just investigate and arrest, but they try, they imprison, and they execute anyone they consider to be an enemy of the state. And because it was a Russian civil war that was raging until 1922, there were a lot of people who would have been considered an enemy of this new state. And during that short period of time, 1917 to 1922, the Cheka executes about 250,000 humans. And if you include the toll from deliberate famine and labor camps, which was also, uh, which were also things that the Cheka was behind, that's two million people. The numbers are staggering. Yeah, I, I don't even know what to do with that number nope. in five years. But after the Civil War ends, you don't need this horrifying secret police anymore. And so you can disband the Cheka. Their organized terror was no longer needed. Now we can finally build the sort of utopian society. And they were replaced by something called the GPU. And at this point, I think we need to apologize. Uh, because we're going to have so many acronyms in this episode. Yeah, the acronyms are incredibly unwieldy. Look, just with the history of the KGB, it goes from the Cheka to the NKVD, which turns into the OGPU, which goes back to the NKVD, which becomes the NKGB, which becomes goes back to the NKVD, which turns again into the NKGB, which comes the MBG, MGB, sorry, which then becomes the KGB. I mean, wait, you know, what, what are you supposed to do? And that's just that's just the Soviet secret police. We still have to deal with the HVA uh, in Germany, the MFS, the SP, uh, the STB. I mean, it's, I, I think this is it's what we do. Alphabet soup. Here. It is an alphabet soup. And so, if you hear a an acronym that you're not familiar with in this episode, just assume that it is part of this massive Soviet intelligence apparatus. And, and just as a, a, a clarifier for any researchers in the field, because I'm going to... Um, You're going to hear it from them. Well, exactly. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to do some things that are not entirely correct. I, for example, will refer to the Soviet secret police as the KGB, no matter what period we're talking about. And in fact, for the STB, for example, the Czech secret police, I think I will just refer to them as Czech intelligence or, or Czech secret police. Uh, East German secret police, East German intelligence, as opposed to relying on all these acronyms, because really 
there comes a point at which I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. And and I might just call them all Czechists. Right, which will... Okay. Even though the Cheka disbands in 1922, I mean, does the Cheka disband? Well, that's... You Do know, secret police ever really disband? Well, that's it, right? With regime change, they just morph into the next into the next incarnation. And and when they morph into the next incarnation, the, the, the sort of kinder, gentler incarnation in 1922 after the Civil War ends, they're still led by Dzerzhinsky, who was that guy whose quote we said about the importance of terror. This reminds me a lot of corporate rebranding. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's the same bloody product, but we gave it a new name or whatever, and it's supposed to affect some kind of massive psychological repositioning but you know it's the same crap this isn't the pontiac sunbird that piece of crap old car this is the pontiac sunfire right so the gpu becomes the ogpu in 1923 and this is also when that former okrana informant joseph stalin becomes the leader of the soviet union and under stalin because i mean his paranoia is legendary yeah Uh, There are so many stories. Basically, any story with Stalin in it is going to be rife with horror and paranoia. He was really a master because what happens is Lenin, who is the, you know, the legitimate leader, I guess, of the Bolsheviks and of the new Soviet Russia, he, he is quickly incapacitated and then dies. Although of natural causes. He does, yeah. One of the few people in this episode who's going to die of natural causes. Yeah, although Stalin will intimate that this or that person tried to kill him. And so what Stalin does is he operates very effectively in this kind of post-Lenin power vacuum where actually one of the natural successors being uh, Leon Trotsky, maybe somebody like Nikolai Bukharin, they are all systematically marginalized until Stalin is essentially the only one left. And then he is, when, and when he is the only one left, then his kind of paranoia and his ultimate power really are unleashed on the Russian people. And the way it is unleashed is through the OGPU. Mm-hmm. Later the NKVD. Right. Later which, the MGB. Which uh, we'll, we'll get to it. The KGB. Yeah. Dzerzhinsky dies of natural causes, again, for a change, in 1926, and is replaced by Majinsky. Probably the last one to die of natural causes in this episode. Yeah, they're going to start dropping like flies. All right, so in the 1930s, the OGPU was in charge of a vast army of informers in all areas of Soviet life. Factories, the government, the Red Army. Basically, if you're in a room full of people, I think you can be pretty sure that at least one of them is going to be an informer for the OGPU. In East Germany, where eventually this same structure is adopted, the estimates are that one-third of the civilian population was an informant on the other two-thirds. I mean, it's just staggering. And so it's true, like you could be out for a dinner with what you suspect are a group of friends, one of them being an informer. And and it, it really, what's amazing about this power structure is that you internalize the fear and the potential threats. And so now, if I go out with a group of friends in this kind of totalitarian dynamic, I just, I'm not going to be very open because I'm not sure if even my trusted friend from 10, 15, 20 years ago hasn't at some point been turned. Yeah, like if we're doing this podcast back then 
at some point you're expecting me to say, well, I have everything I need. And then the door breaks down and then a bunch of people come and arrest you. And you're like, wait, wait, but I have everything I need. Exactly. And then the window breaks down and they come and arrest me. Yeah, exactly. So that's why in a podcast like this, you know, under the Soviet Union, we would both be talking about how great the Soviet Union is all day long. Sure is great. (laughs) That's Stalin. He has got a fine mustache. So the OGPU has got this vast army of informers. They're also put in charge of the gulags which is just a a horrifying prison system, which, again, results in the deaths of just an uncountable amount of human beings. Yeah, so it essentially functions as a political prison, and uh, it's a labor camp in grueling, unbelievable conditions. A lot of them are in Siberia. Um, People are not, obviously, housed or fed in any adequate way your experience is essentially of deprivation, cold, starvation, fear, paranoia, paranoia, and beatings. Yeah. And that's, and that's a good day. And that's the OGPU. They're replaced in 1934 by the NKVD. And at this point, they are basically just an extension of Stalin's paranoia. Yeah. And they are an extension of Stalin's violence. And they execute, execute millions of people. Yeah. This is something... Uh, we just I just did an episode recently about how politicians sometimes feel like they can tap into a, a certain kind of energy, a certain kind of power, because they feel like they can use that power without it affecting them. You can't unleash this kind of thing. You simply can't. This kind of destructive energy will consume everything that it touches. And you see this uh, in something like the French Revolution, where eventually that violence turns inward and the leaders of the French Revolution start to like, fall to their own guillotines. And you see this in the NKVD. Uh, it's being led by a guy called Yagoda until 1936, and then he gets executed in 38. And then it's led by Yezhov until 1938, and then he gets executed in 1940. It's consuming everyone, including the people who are lighting the fires. And then, of course, you hit World War Two. Yeah, you're looking at me as if I need to say something here, but I don't know. Like, it's not getting any better. It's not going to get any better. Um, the NKVD lasts all the way through World War II. Like, Stalin is almost killing his own people at a quicker rate than the Red Army is killing Germans. Yeah, or maybe even then the Germans are killing the Red Army. Yeah, yeah. It, it, is, it is horrifying to even uh, contemplate. In 1946, it gets renamed again, MGB, like that nice little British sports car. Oh, my dad had one of those. Yeah, those are adorable. Yeah, I've, ri- I've driven in those. Uh, did it have the the... The chrome bumpers, or did it have the plastic bumpers? Chrome bumpers. Oh, those are the good ones. Yeah, it was like 62 or something. Oh, that was a good MGB. <laughs> Sorry, we just needed to take a second to think yeah, of something yeah, yeah. pleasant. <laughs> so the MGB is quite successful, because, and, but they also need to make a shift. Because up until now, the Soviet secret police has mostly been directed inward at enemies on the inside of the Soviet Union. Well, 1946, of course, we have the beginnings of the Cold War, and there's a brand new enemy. And it's an enemy that the Soviets weren't really that worked up about until about this moment. In the early days of the revolution, the Soviet Union is much more worried about the British than they are about the Americans. But in 1946, the Americans have just dropped a couple bombs and destroyed a couple of cities in Japan, in part, I would argue, to show the Soviets what they were capable of. Yeah, the Soviets were needed in World War II. Yeah. You know, they were needed as part of the quote-unquote uh, good guys, 
you know, the, the Americans, the Brits, the French. The Canadians. To, the Canadians, of course, to defeat the Nazis uh, after the Second World War ends, the, the political alignments start to shift. And, and this was already known within the Western powers, England, uh, the United States, who start thinking about economic policies post uh, the Second World War. The relationships start to become colder between the Americans and the Russians at this point. Yeah, and they get real chilly. Part of the uh, the increased interest that so Soviet secret police have with the United States is that there's a massive expansion of the spy network within the United States. And one of the main things they're curious about, of course, is the A-bomb. And it is the MGB that is able to successfully pull off a bunch of operations that include the stealing of uh, American A-bomb plans so that the Soviets before the end of the 1940s are able to build their own atomic bomb. Now, the MGB is led by another guy, Beria, who was just a, a piece of garbage, this guy. Not a nice man. This guy is awful. He's but, a, but things don't end well for him no, either. So. No, no, he gets bumped, <laughs> not like, spoiler alert, he gets killed in 1953. So the MGB, they arrest another 750,000 Russians in eight years. They, they're sort of the ones that begin the, the Cold War approach to Soviet uh, secret police. So now we're fully in the Cold War, but Stalin also dies. Right. Of natural causes. Yep. And so now there's an attempt to try to take the MGB and, and turn them into a, a kinder, gentler kind of force. Okay. Again, another, we need another rebranding at this point. Right. Okay. Why don't we call them the KGB or something? And now they're the KGB, <laughs> uh, an attempt to make the secret police less violent and out of control. The leader at this point of the Soviet Union is Nikita Khrushchev. And I will say this about Khrushchev. He was a much less of a hardliner than Stalin. Uh, and, and he was interested in this kind of process of de-Stalinization. Right. So I will give Khrushchev some credit for that. Right. Yes. He is a character... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the infamous image of him at the UN beating the, the table with his shoe. So he takes off his shoe and then beats the table as he's making a point. I mean, he's such a Cold War character. It's oh, impossible God. to remember those early days of the Cold War, things like the space race and the Cuban yeah. Missile Crisis. I mean, Khrushchev is the Soviet leader for all of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's, he's like a classic Soviet yeah. And leader. he comes from the peasantry. Like, he's yeah. a farm boy. And he makes it all the way up to becoming the leader of the Soviet Union, but he never stops being a peasant in a way, you know, in his character, in his kind of forthrightness and his uh, lack of decorum. Uh, and so he is this really spectacular image on television, this character. Yeah. If, if you imagine a, a Russian leader from the 1950s and 60s, imagine one in your head, it's going to be Khrushchev. Yeah, exactly. Sort of looks like a Humpty Dumpty. Now, he also survived. And then even when he was deposed, he was deposed gently and yep. was able to sort of live out his life in, That's a, right. in a little house. They depose him while he's on holiday. That's the same way they got Gorbachev eventually. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's, that's the difference in the pre- and post-Stalin periods, right? right. Like in, pre, in Stalin, you're, you just get shot in the head. And then post-Stalin, you go on holiday and somebody else is in your office when you get back. Yeah, that still seems gentler. Yeah. I want to talk about something that happened in 1955 that I think sort of indicates the transition away from just the hard violence of the Czechists 
to a more like a to a stranger kind of war for minds. Okay. Of the KGB. I mean, I'm not saying the KGB wasn't violent because obviously they were not to the Czechist level. Right. Okay. But they were much more interested in disinformation. So let me tell you about something that happened in 1955. Okay, 1955, you've got no nuclear intercontinental ballistic missiles. The only way that you can drop a warhead on one of your enemy cities is a bomber, which means that at this point in the podcast, I need to talk about Cold War airplanes. This is the only reason that, yeah, you've just like finagled this in here somehow. So happy about it. <laughs> All right. Right, so the CIA and the DIA are both like super... Hold on, DIA? The Defense Intelligence Agency. Really? Yeah. Yeah, they don't get a lot of... Like, it's funny, when I'm researching, the DIA comes up a lot, but they have no pop culture cred. Huh. But uh, anytime you're, you're going through old files, you often come across the DIA. DIA. So they are very curious to know, what kind of planes do the Soviets have? Mm-hmm. Up until this point, the Soviets are basically flying something that's a copy of an American B-29. A few B-29s crash in Russia during the war, the Soviets take them apart, rebuild them, and now they have their own version of it. But the B-29 is a World War II propeller bomber. It's not something that the Americans have to worry about so, so much. But how do you get access to the new stuff that the Soviets are working on? As we've talked about before, that's a huge country. It is hard to get intelligence out of it. One thing that you can do is you can take advantage of the one time when Soviet pride overcomes Soviet secrecy, parades. Okay. The Soviets love having Red Army parades where they show off all their new equipment. And the CIA and the DIA think this is just amazing. They're so pleased with their cleverness using Soviet military parades as intelligence gathering opportunities. Because as the Russian people can see all the latest missiles and rockets and things that are, that are driving by, you can get so close to them. Rather than flying over them at 70,000 feet and getting a little speck in your right. photograph... Now, in the 1955 parade, the American intelligence community was terrified to see that the Soviets apparently had dozens of the new Miasichev M4 heavy jet bomber, designated Bison by NATO. Uh, This was a massive display of force. Just over and over again, these huge, massive jet bombers came thundering onto the screen and flew by. There was like dozens and dozens of these things flying by. And the American intelligence agencies realize, oh boy, the Soviets probably have 800 of these massive new jet bombers. Mm. There is a bomber gap. The Americans have got to start pumping out B-52s, B-47s, like B-whatevers. Yeah, get on with it. So you got to bring the Bs. Yeah. Uh, and so it sends America into a panic and they start to spend a fortune buying up new bombers. However... What actually happened in that parade was that the Soviets only had like 12 of those bombers. And all they did, like they were in a cartoon or something, is they flew them across the screen, whereupon they would circle around, go behind the camera, and then fly across the screen again. It was the same bombers flying over and over and over again. This trick comes up so often in In military history. In Three Stooges episodes. Yeah, well, I was thinking about a time when the Nazis did something like this, where they had their troops proudly march through a town, and then at night they would all run around to to the other end of the town and do it again the next day. So the impression was that there were just 
thousands and thousands of troops coming through your town. But in fact, it was the same whatever regiment um, that was just doing it over and over again. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of classic disinformation. You're using the Americans think they're so clever at using the parades to get good information. And then it turns out that the parades are actually an opportunity for the Soviets to provide disinformation. Now, if we're going to get really complicated here, we could point out the fact that the American military-industrial complex was happy to go along with that disinformation because it meant that now they were responsible for producing hundreds and hundreds of very expensive bombers. All, could... all of this money could have gone to hospitals. Right, exactly. Yeah. Cold War. So that takes us up, I think, from the early days of the secret police to the KGB time, and also, I think, gets us into now, finally to where we can almost talk about Facebook. Right, because we're in the 1960s now. Because we're in the 1960s, and remember, (laughs) this episode is all about Facebook. Like 60 or 70 years away, so we're really getting there. So that gets us to this new kind of warfare, the kind of warfare where it's a warfare of disinformation. Okay. So this is the part in our episode on Facebook that we realized that we had been talking for about an hour and still hadn't made it past 1955. So it was at that point that we decided to pretend that this episode was always meant to be an hour-long exploration of the history of the KGB, and we'll continue our examination of Facebook disinformation in future episodes. 